We're going to look at Philippians 4, verses 19 and 20 this morning. Um, I don't know if uh, you have uh, financially informed people in your care group. In our care group, last December, I remember there was a lot of talk about bitcoins. You know, that cryptocurrency, I don't know exactly how it works. I tried reading about it. My eyes started glazing over. But there was a lot of talk about it. Okay, And supposedly, if you have like this magic code on a hard drive you threw away, you're like, oh, I could have had thousands of dollars. So that occurred. But one Bitcoin in 2017, in the beginning of the year, was worth $1,000. There was a point in December where those Bitcoins were worth $20,000. Now, during that dramatic rise in value, many were jumping in to invest, especially as it was getting really more and more, like daily. Many others were skeptical, though. What would it take for you to feel okay investing everything you had in one venture? Would your comfort change if you had 100% certainty that there was no risk and only profit? It would be probably pretty tough to convince you. You should really sell your home. It's 100% guaranteed you're going to make a 20-time profit. You'd be like, I don't really buy it, right? And you shouldn't. And that's good. Because God uh, really uh, uses fear to keep us from taking many unwise risks. Many people did not lose their life savings buying bitcoins, which is good, because they would have lost their life savings. When it comes to finances, that's God's grace. But not when it comes to his glory. Have you ever been afraid to invest your life, your all, in God's glory? To see all your energies devoted to him, getting as much praise as possible? Maybe you felt some of that fear in the past. What would liberate you to invest your all in God's glory? And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. The book of, of uh, Philippians is the Apostles Paul encouraging letter, and it is really an encouraging letter to a church that was facing all kinds of hardship. Paul had planted the church in, in Philippi about, ton, about 10 years prior. One of the concerns that they had was the first pastor, Paul, what was going to happen to him as he was waiting potential execution and trial before Emperor Nero. But there was also disunity they were facing inside the church. There's persecution from without. And if we take when Corinth, the letter of 2 Corinthians is talking about this church in Macedonia, and, and it almost certainly is, they were also an impoverished church. They had all kinds of problems. And yet, despite the poverty, the Philippians had generously once again sent a gift to Paul. This time to Paul while he was in prison in Rome. Now, at the end of the letter, Paul wanted to express gratitude for this gift, but he also wanted to express um, the awareness that he wasn't dependent upon their gift, that he could be content in whatever his circumstances because of his strength in Christ Jesus. At the same time, though, Paul also wanted to encourage the Philippians. He wanted to encourage them about what their generosity not had meant to him personally, although he does that, 
but what it says about their hearts, and that is what we looked at last week, what generosity revealed about the Philippians' hearts. Well, Paul had encouraged the Philippians about their generosity. Paul encourages them next with the truth about God's generosity. And we're going to see that today in Philippians 4, 19 and 20. But I'm going to start and we'll read once again from Philippians 4, verses 10 through 20. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. For even in Thessalonica you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. But I have received everything in full and have in abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I'm sure this uh, morning we're going to end praying just as we started. We want you to receive the glory. We know that you are going to be glorified. It is where human history is going, us enjoying your glorification for eternity. But Father, that is what we are, we are eager for this morning. Lord, I know that your people, the heart of them, cries out to see you glorified. And so our hearts cry out together now for you to be glorified forever and ever. We pray, Father, that as we look at your graciousness, your generosity, your kindness, and the way that you meet our needs, that our hearts would be emboldened, would be liberated to pursue your glory with our all. That the same thing that goes on in Paul's heart here, as he considers your generosity, it would lead to our being generous in our pursuit of your glory. We thank you, Father, for preserving your word for us. Lord, we are dependent on you bringing about change in our hearts through your Son, through your Spirit indwelling. In Jesus' name, amen. In verse 19, we saw that Paul comforts the Philippians with the promise of the Father's care. In verse 20... Paul focuses the Philippians on the Father's glory. The promise of verse 19 leads to the praise of verse 20. I'll say it again. The promise of verse 19 leads to the praise of verse 20. So that leads to our big idea this, this morning. The certainty of God's provision liberates the believer to pursue God's glory. The certainty of God's provision liberates the believer to pursue God's glory. And we're going to see two exhortations drawn from Philippians 4, 19 and 20, so that you, as you become certain of God taking care of your needs, you would pursue God's glory. So the first exhortation we're going to draw is be comforted by God's generosity. We see that in verse 19. Be comforted by God's 
generosity. And as we do that, we're going to look at five aspects of God's generosity so that you will be comforted. We look at five aspects of God's generosity so that you will be comforted. As the letter closed, Paul knew that the Philippians needed more encouragement. They needed more comfort. There were so many things that they were facing. Him potentially executed. The disunity that they were suffering. The persecution. Poverty. Disappointed that they had hoped that Timothy would be able to come and help them and he couldn't. They were a church that was struggling. And so as Paul encourages them about how generously they had given, he takes this opportunity to comfort them. And so he's going to comfort them with this promise in verse 19 of God's generosity to them. And that leads us to the first aspect of God's generosity and why they can be comforted is that God's generosity is proven. God's generosity is proven. Paul could have simply said, and God will supply all your needs. And that had been perfectly fine. If he had said that, we would have never noticed. But he doesn't. He says, and my God will supply all your needs. And I love that we have to ask, and this is a great thing to do when we're meditating in Scripture, is to say, why is there a my there? Paul uses that same phrase elsewhere in his prayers. And one commentator said he's probably drawn from the well of the Psalters for it. That this is the kind of language that is repeated again and again in the Psalms, like Psalm 3, verse 7. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. Or Psalm 7, 1, O Lord, my God, and you have taken refuge. Psalm 18, 2, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield. You see all those personal Possessive pronouns there, my God. So imagine the impact that saying my God had upon the, the Philippians from the lips of Paul. Here he's sitting in prison, likely chained to a guard, waiting to find out whether he'd be executed. So despite his circumstances... Paul is still content in Christ, and so he says, my God will supply all your needs. He's 100% confident. He's still rejoicing in Christ that overflows the letter. He could testify to the Lord's faithfulness and say, my God. God's people can always use the language of my God. Imagine the impact it would have been. And Scripture doesn't say this again and again, but I think we can imagine. Imagine if Abraham spoke to Isaac and said, my God will supply your needs. Imagine if Joseph talked to his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, after everything Joseph had gone through, and could say, my God will supply all your needs. If Moses spoke to Israel after the 40 years of wilderness wandering and said, my God will supply all your needs. If David spoke to his son Solomon after all that pursued and even all the sin and say, my God will supply all your needs. God is faithful to his people and he displays that faithfulness during our trials. By God's grace, your life will be a testimony to the next generation of God's people. You will be able to join with Paul and say, my God will supply all your needs. How encouraging to think about that being one of your final breaths to God's people. My God will supply all your needs. It's guaranteed we know that he will do this. 
That's the first reason why we have to be comforted by God's generosity. It's a proven generosity. Through thousands of, through thousands of years of God's people, the generosity of God is proven, but it's also promised. The generosity of God is promised. And Paul says, my God will supply all your needs. The verb supply here is the same one that Paul had just used in the previous verse we just saw in verse 18. But I have received everything in full and have in abundance. I am amply supplied. You guys have done splendidly taking care of me. But Paul had no capacity to pay the Philippians back. He couldn't say, and now I'm going to supply your needs. But he guarantees that the Lord could do what he couldn't. The testimony of scripture is that God takes care of his people. In Nehemiah 9, verse 15, he looks back. He says, You provided bread from heaven for them for their hunger. You brought forth water from a rock for them for their thirst. And you told them to enter in to possess the land which you swore to give them. Referring back to God's uh, provision of Israel during those wilderness wanderings. Psalm 23 talks about the Lord's faithful generosity to his saints. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Psalm 34, verse 9 and 10. Another great promise of the Lord's provision for his people, the Lord's generosity. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For to those who fear him, there is no want. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. Oh, we could go on with the verses that that testify to the Lord's goodness and his providing, the Lord supplying for a saint. Psalm 84, no good thing does he withhold from those who walk walk uprightly. Matthew 6, 31 to 34, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says the same thing. Do not worry then saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Now, perhaps you're wondering, wait, I can think of lots of times where saints suffered. Didn't look like God was meeting their needs. We're going to talk about those in a minute. Here's perhaps the greatest verse of them all on God's provision for us. Romans 8.32 He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? After knowing God's grace to us in Christ Jesus, this is why the Apostle Paul could say, God will supply all your needs. He's already given us his son. Right? If, if we've seen the generosity of Christ displayed the generosity of God displayed in giving us his son. He will take care of all of our needs. The same God who made bread fall from the sky and water came from a rock. The same God who sent ravens to bring Elijah bread and meat twice a day. The same God who caused one widow's jar to fill up all the other empties. The same God who put money in a fish's mouth to pay taxes. The same God who multiplied five loaves of bread and two fish to feed 5,000 men. That same God will supply all your needs if you belong to him. You can see why he gets excited about God's glory next, right? This is good news. 
This reason to be comforted here. We're comforted by God's generosity because it is proven, it's promised. But God's generosity is also wise. God's generosity is also wise. He says, all your needs. Now, I just mentioned, perhaps you're wondering, exactly what are all those needs? You know, can we make a short list? Are there guarantees? Is it food, water, clothing, shelter? Can we extend that a bit? Can we extend it to health, sleep, rest? How about a safe neighborhood or safety from anything bad ever happening to my family or medical care or always have lots of friends or a spouse? Bible teaching church, a copy of his word. Exactly how far does all these needs go? It'd be great to put all those things on a list and say that those are your needs. The reality is that God's people have not often had all those needs met. Those needs met. Remember the context here. Philippians 4 verse 12. Paul just talked about being filled and going hungry. Of having abundance and suffering need. I know it's tempting to to do this perhaps too often. It's so informative looking at some of Paul's experiences when we talk about what he means here. So I'm going to do it again. 1 Corinthians 4, 11 through 13. To this hour, we are both hungry and thirsty and are poorly clothed and are roughly treated and are homeless. And we toil working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. That doesn't sound like having our needs met. Right? That is not what we think about when we think about our needs being met. Or 2 Corinthians 6, verses 4 through 5. He talks about his afflictions, his hardships, his distresses, and beatings, and imprisonments, and tumults, and labors, and sleeplessness, and hunger. But my needs are met, Paul would say. 2 Corinthians 11, verses 24 through 27, another list of Paul's suffering. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. I've been in frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness. It's a little like Sam I am here. Dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. But he could say, my God will supply all your needs. Hebrews 11, 36 to 38, describes some of the things that other saints have gone through. Others experienced mockings and scourgings. Yes, also chains and imprisonments. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to the death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. But my God will supply all of our needs. Abel was killed. Jeremiah was beaten in prison and then thrown into a cistern filled with mud that, that he sank into. Zechariah was stoned right there in the temple and Stephen outside the gates of, of the city of Jerusalem. So we have to ask, will God supply all of our needs? Well, maybe not the way we define them. Philippians 1.29, we study this. It says, For to you it has been granted. It is a gift from God to suffer for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but to suffer for his sake. 
So ultimately, we have to go to a God who's wiser than we are and a God who knows more what our needs are than we do. Romans 16, 27 describes God as the only wise God. Romans eleven thirty three, oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. And we have to say that when it looks like our needs are not being met. He is the only wise God. His judgments aren't searchable. I don't understand, but he does. Only God knows what we need, including to have needs. God knows that we need to have needs. He allows needs in our life so that we know that he is our greatest need. I've referenced this passage in the past. I love it. It explains why Israel went through those wilderness wanderings in Deuteronomy 8, verses 2 and 3. You shall remember all the ways which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, testing you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Of course, we know that God knows what was in the heart. This is to reveal and to expose what was in the hearts. He humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna, which you didn't know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. He allows us to go through need, 40 years of need. Think about Moses spending the previous 40 years as a shepherd. Before that, in Israel, I mean, in Egypt, away from his Israelite family. God allows us to go through vast stretches of need so that we would learn to depend on the words that come out of his mouth so that he would be our greatest need. So that we would learn the sufficiency of Christ. It is only when our wise Lord allows challenging circumstances that we know the extent of Christ's power. We just read in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The context of that was hunger and need. It's only when our wise Lord refuses to remove the thorn in the flesh that we grasp how sufficient his grace really is. 2 Corinthians 12 verses 9 and 10. God said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. For power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, Paul says, I will rather boast about my weaknesses. Really, most of us, we'd say the need. So that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties. For Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. There's nothing more valuable than this, that we would know Jesus Christ, might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering, that we might attain to conformity to him in the resurrection of the dead. That is our greatest need. So when he, Paul promises, my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus, it's all the needs. Now, maybe if Paul went on to talk more about money, we could say that that all was just talking about finances here, but this is the end of the letter. Like, this is Paul's grand, grand finale to them. It's not just this need, it's the need that they have for unity and the need that they have for contentment and the need that they have to have their joy in Christ. My God will supply all your needs in Christ Jesus, even as I'm sitting here in prison with lots of needs. And there's comfort for God's generosity because he's proven, that generosity is proven, it is promised, it is wise, it's also unlimited. God's generosity is unlimited. 
Paul continues in Philippians 4.19, And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory. God is not stingy. His giving is in proportion to his greatness. It's not out of his riches. Like, like God has this very large bank vault. And he goes in and he takes a scoop out and gives you some of that. It's not out of his riches and glory, but according to, in a manner that's appropriate with his riches and glory. And that riches, it's the idea of wealth there. In everything that he has has. Paul uses the phrase, though, in, in glory, and different commentators are different using this, I, th- I think, to move our eyes heavenward. To not just focus on the out of his riches, because he's not really talking about money there. It's all of God's resources, resources in glory. He moves our eyes heavenward, up to God's throne room. Perhaps to a scene like that in Isaiah 6. I'll read it again, Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 4. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord, this is Isaiah the prophet speaking, sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with a train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew, talking about the seraphim. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. That's that riches and glory. That throne room scene. God's resources are unlimited. Stare into the night sky. Look at the stars. Imagine his resources, but then even more. Stare at the resurrection of his son, his resurrected son, and what resources he's given us. God's resources are unlimited. He's meeting every single one of our needs today in a matter that's fitting with his infinite ability. It's not like some of you are outside of getting his needs, getting your needs met. If you are in Christ Jesus, you are having your needs met today. It's a guarantee. It's according to his wisdom, but it's also according to his unlimited riches and glory. I mean, no one's stepping on the fire hose or the hose of, of, of God's grace to you. Right? He gives you all of your needs in Christ Jesus. We can be comforted because God's generosity is proven, it's promised, it's wise, it's unlimited, but it's also guaranteed. See, this great promise of having all of your needs met according to the riches and according to the riches in glory, is to those who are in Christ Jesus. This is not a promise for all people. It's for those who are in Christ Jesus. Only those who are in Christ Jesus are guaranteed the Father's generosity. Every need that's met in the world today, even being met right now, is not because of someone's goodness, but only because of the Father's grace. We use a phrase called common grace. Any table that has food on it is because of God's generosity. And any shelter from the sun is from God's generosity. Any medical care is from God's generosity. Because God treats his rebellious creatures not according to what they deserve, but according to his grace. But that generosity God has, it does have an end date. It will expire. The day is coming that the only needs will be met and will continue for all eternity is those who are in Christ Jesus. 
Hell is the end of God's generosity. There's no greater question to ask is, am I in Christ? What a sweet promise here. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. You have to ask yourself, am I in Christ Jesus? Do I have new life in him? Am I a a new creature? Have I been united to him through faith? Have I come to the end of myself? Have I seen that I have no hope to save myself? I can't change myself. Have you put all of your hope in Christ alone? Have you repented and turned from your sins and made him the Lord of your life? Have you submitted to his lordship? Put all of your hope in him. This is a sweet blessing, a sweet promise, but it's only to those who are in Christ Jesus. There is eternal generosity in Christ. But there is no generosity for eternity for those who are not in Christ. Are you in Christ? Is he your Savior? Is he your Lord? Have you been united with him? Is his new life bring you the ability to obey? Those who are in Christ Jesus have the comfort of God's eternal, unmitigated, wise generosity. Now, this verse is so thrilling that, in a sense, I mean, it's filled, right? And maybe your heart's a little full, but we still have more time. So, I can't stop here, and Paul couldn't stop here, right? Something happens in his heart. It bursts. It's so thrilling, Paul can't stop. Paul's body may be chained, but his heart is unfettered. Reflecting on God's provision launches Paul's heart into exaltation. And and you can just see how this goes. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. So, So what does he do? Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Meditating on God's generosity propels Paul's heart to pray for God's glory. The certainty and the confidence that comes from God's generosity should liberate us to pursue his glory wholeheartedly, just as what we see Paul doing here. This good news should lead to our glorifying him, to our pursuing his glory. Our comfort should lead us to be consumed with his glory. That leads to our second point. So our first big exhortation we got was we needed to be comforted by God's generosity. Next is that we need to be consumed with God's glory. I think many of you are already feeling it. When you focus on God's graciousness to us, his generosity to us, especially as that's all summed up to us in Christ Jesus, we can overflow with liberated hearts to pursue his glory. So we need to be consumed with God's glory. In Christ Jesus, we have everything we need to be content. Our only discontentment. I have to work to conform to this. It's not true of me yet. Our only discontentment should be with the amount of glory he gets. We should be unsatisfied with the amount of worship our God is getting. Especially after looking at his generosity. Paul says... Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. The glory of God is the primary passion of the church. It's our primary passion, our primary pursuit. Be the glory. To glorify God is to value God accurately. To value him as he's revealed in his word. 
to appreciate him, and then to express approval to our God for everything he is and for everything he has done. That is what it is to glorify God. It's to accurately value him and then to express approval to him. When we pray to God be the glory, we pray for God to receive the unlimited honor, the respect that he deserves for his attributes and for his actions. It is to pray that he, reserves all the, or that he receives all the attention he deserves, all the devotion he deserves, all the applause that he deserves, all the joyful submission and obedience that he deserves. That is what it means to God be the glory, to God get everything that's coming to him. That every spotlight in creation would be directed upon only him. That there would be no sideshows competing for his attention on the main stage. To pray that his name would be hallowed. To pray that his name, his kingdom would come. We see that in Matthew 6, 9 through 10 and how Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your name be treated as holy as it is. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's a prayer for God to be glorified. Our primary passion is to have 100% of the affection and attention of 100% of his people belong to God 100% of the time. That's what that prayer is, that God be glorified that 100% of the attention and affection of God's people be devoted to God 100% of the time by 100% of his people, that nothing is held back for ourselves, but that all is consumed for his glory. That's what it means to be consumed with God's glory, to have his glory be our primary passion. The glory of God is a primary passion of the church. It's also the uniting focus of the church. The glory of God is the primary passion of the church. It's also the uniting focus of the church. Look how Paul says, Now to our God and Father. He doesn't say there, Now to my God and Father. Right? He said my God in the previous verse. This verse now, though, and remember the Philippians were struggling with unity, he pulls them all together. To our God and Father. The Philippian church needed to be united, and that is what unites the body of Christ, a pursuit of the glory of the Father. Philippians 2.2, Paul pleads with them, Make my joy complete. You guys love me. Make me happy by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. And that one purpose is God's glory in Christ Jesus. Philippians 4.2 and, and, and we, we read this, I, I, I urge you, Yodi, I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. That means to think the same thing in the Lord. Be united around this common cause. There's this passionate pursuit. Be consumed with God's glory together. He is our God and Father. The Philippians were more in danger focusing on, on, on the minor characters in the play. The minor parts that they were playing. Then on the major plot line. Then the guaranteed conclusion that is coming at the day of Christ. That God be all in all. When we are confident of God's gracious provision. When we know that he has our back. We have freedom to work together. To be united for God's glory together. 
the glory of God as the primary passion of the church, as the uniting focus of the church. It's also the affectionate pursuit of the church. It's the affectionate pursuit of the church. It's not just duty. There's affection here. We see that. Again, Paul could have said, now to our God be the glory forever and ever. And that would have been fantastic. But he says, now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. For the church, the glory of God is a family matter. God is the transcendent God, but he's also our imminent Father. He's close to us. That's possible because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ after he paid for the punishment of sins and rose again from the dead. Jesus said to Mary in John 20, 17, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father, and my God and your God. And that's one of the things that's accomplished on the cross of Christ through his resurrection. That, 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 that the Father of Christ is our Father, that we become his brothers. Romans talks about him being the firstborn among many brethren. It's only possible to have God as Father if we've been adopted through faith in Jesus Christ. Those who are not in Christ the Son do not have God as Father. John 8, 42, Jesus says sobering words. He said to them, if God were your Father, you would love me. And that's true this morning. If God were your Father, you would love his Son. By God's grace, I trust that many of you are. You love his son because you love the father, and you love the father because you love the son. That wasn't what Jesus was saying to these. If God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and have come from God. But you are of your father the devil, it says in verse 44. And you want to do the desires of your father. You don't love the truth. And they wanted to kill him. All of humanity, either God is your father or Satan's your father. Those who are in Christ Jesus have adoption as sons. Galatians 4, verses 4 through 5. When the fullness of time had come, the perfect time in God's plan, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive the adoptions of his son. He purchased them back by paying the punishment of our sins. He purchased us so that we could be adopted as sons. And how does that happen? Galatians 3.26. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. It is not by being good. It is not by even believing a system of doctrine. It is not by sins you don't do, by promises you've made. It is only through faith in Christ alone that we become God's children, that he becomes our father. Those who are in Christ Jesus have the privilege of pursuing the glory of God, their Father. And it is a privilege. It's not just a duty. It's a privilege. It's what we're going to be doing for eternity. He's our, he's our Father. We want all the kids on the playground to know how great our dad is, right? We don't want anyone trash-talking him. We want everyone to glorify our Father. The glory of God is the primary passion of the church. It's the uniting focus of the church. It's the affectionate pursuit of the church. It's also the eternal expectation of the church. The glory of God is the eternal expectation of the church. We see that. Now to our God and Father be the glory. And he builds upon it forever and ever. We know where this is going. God's people yearn for the day when the glory of God 
will not be assaulted by anyone in the universe for him to receive the glory he deserves. The glory of God is our desire, but it's also, and I think this comes out in this verse, a confidence, right? To our God be the glory forever and ever. We know that the Lord wins. We know that he will be praised forever. We've already seen the culmination of that that event in Philippians 2. We saw how God highly exalted Christ and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul's already shown the end scene. Brothers and sisters, that day has already dawned in our hearts. We are already in the light. We have already seen the glory of God in the face of Christ. And that's what our sanctification is, is getting more of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And we long for the day when whatever sinful effect still being this flesh has, and we are made totally, completely, entirely new, our new creature united with new flesh, and we see the glory of God in the face of Christ like we have never here and never will in this flesh. We will see God forever glorified in Christ. God has taken away our blindness. But here, in this flesh now, while this remaining desire of sin still lingers, it's like sunglasses are on. We've seen it, but it's not as clear as we're going to see it. When the last influence of of being related to Adam is eradicated, when all that remains is the reality of being in Christ, we will have front front row seats in the display of God's glory for eternity. Right now, there's a person sitting in front of you that's blocking your view of God's glory. And who is it? It's not someone tall. It's you. Right? It's you. It's that self-focus. It's that sinful self that keeps blocking out God's glory in the face of Christ. But how sweet that will be when forever and ever for eternity... We will unhindered see God as he is and love him as he is and obey him as we ought. And if every desire and every affection and all of our tension go to him, we will be infinitely happy. That's why we say, come Lord Jesus, right? It's what we're going for. It's closer now than it was this morning. Soon. Self will be forever ushered out of the theater of God's glory. Amen? We look forward to it. And that's, like, that, that, that's what Paul expects them to say here. He expects them to say amen. Because his heart is bursting, and he wants their heart to burst. And so he calls for it to burst. He says, now you all burst with me here. That's what he says in verse 20. I'll read 19 again because it's so good. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Don't we all agree? That leads us to this last aspect of, you know, glory of God in relation to the church and why we should be consumed with his glory. The glory of God is the primary passion of the church. It's the uniting focus, the affectionate pursuit the eternal expectation, but also the corporate prayer of the church. We say amen together. Amen is an affirmation of your agreement. You say amen. But it's also the individual prayer that that request may be granted. 
May it be, Lord. I want you to receive the glory for an ever and ever. May it be, Lord. Quickly, Lord. When Paul concludes, Now to our God and Father be the glory for ever and ever, does your, sharp, does your heart shout, Amen? Does your heart shout, Amen? Is God's glory your compelling desire? Is God's glory what you're consumed with? His glory is the fuel for our endeavors in the way that we do our jobs, in the way that we work hard at parenting. His glory is the way we live with our spouses and love them. It's the way we use our gifts in the church. It's the way we are devoted to one another's needs. It's the way that we reach out to the world. It is all about His glory. So is your heart consumed with his glory? Do you shout out, amen, sign me up. That's all that I want. All of my resources can be committed to that. You get it all, Lord. Perhaps apathy may be keeping you from shouting out, amen. Have you forgotten the miracle of adoption? Have you forgotten the good news of belonging to him, of having him as your father, that he reached into your life and had grace on you when he had no reason to accept his glory? Have you forgotten that your adoption was purchased at the cost of his own son? That we can cry out, my God and our father, because Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Has, is apathy keeping you from shouting out amen? Or maybe self-focus is keeping you from shouting out amen. Maybe you're afraid of being all in for God's glory because you don't want to give up personal pleasures. Maybe some of them sinful. Maybe because you're more focused on the disappointments of your life. You've gotten bitterness towards God. You're more focused with yourself. He's sitting, you are sitting and blocking your view of God. Perhaps fear is keeping you from shouting out amen. Are you afraid? Are you concerned what pursuing Christ's glory, what pursuing the Father's glory might cost you, or where it might lead you, or what relationship may have to be in jeopardy? Maybe your heart is comforted and grounded in God's generosity to you. That you know that all your needs are met in Christ Jesus. And that knowing God's goodness to you in Christ Jesus, knowing his grace to you, has liberated you to be consumed with his glory. And so your heart is shouting out, Amen. I want more glory for him. I'm not worried because he's going to take care of me. If you are in Christ Jesus, God will meet all your needs according to his riches and glory. There is no risk in pursuing his glory. There is no risk in pursuing his glory. You are free to pursue his glory because he will take care of all of your needs. Let's pray together.
Father, Lord, I feel both comforted and challenged, even rebuked. I'm comforted as Paul ends this letter here with uh, this look at your generosity. Oh, Father, we know that you are wise. We know that you know what we need more than we ourselves do. Father, our lives, uh, many of us are filled with many, many aches, many absences, many hurts. Lord, I thank you that you are wise in the distributing of those. You don't take pleasure in the suffering of us, or at least not in a way that is um, cruel. Lord, but you are wise knowing what we need. You're wise, but you're also unlimited in your power. You're unlimited in your supply. We know, Father, that you've been faithful in the past, and we rejoice this morning, Lord, that we know you will be faithful, that, that this is a promise, Lord. It's not just a promise to have money in our bank account or food in our cupboard or maybe clothes, Lord. That's, it's so much greater than that, Lord. You have such a great purpose for us, and that's that we would be wholehearted worshipers of you, that we would know nothing but Christ and him glorified, Thank you, Father, for the needs that we have, Lord, and, and we trust your wisdom that you might even see fit to give us more needs. We, we, we thank you for being wise and gracious and, and gentle with us, Lord, and we thank you that you promised to meet those needs according to the riches of glory. Lord, you are glorious. You are surrounded in glory. And, Father, we want our hearts to be consumed with your glory as well. So I do pray, Father, that this, that this good news here this morning, this, 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 this hope that we have in Christ of you being our Father, of your faithfulness, of your being proven, and of your, of, of your promise and of this generosity would liberate us, Lord, that we would be consumed with your glory, that that would be our heart's desire more than anything. And not just now, Lord, I feel it more now than I did and even studying this passage this week, Lord, but I know tonight's going to happen and tomorrow's going to happen. We pray, Father, for long-term change, Lord, and and long-term unity of our hearts agreeing together that we want your glory and, and our hearts sacrificing together for your glory and our hearts obeying your commands for your glory, and our hearts advancing outward with the gospel for your glory. Father, we see that that confidence in Paul, and it brought him to some crazy places as he stewarded the gifts that you'd given him. Help us to be faithful to steward the gifts that you've given us for your glory, Lord. Thank you so much for uh, the, the, the good news of this encouragement, and uh, we do want you to be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.